But first, we are talking about Vancouver's budget. $1.747 billion. That's how much the city of Vancouver plans to spend next year. A big chunk of that money is coming from a 6.35% property tax increase, which was the cause of fiery debate. Here's Councillor Colleen Hardwick. Voting for this budget is a broken promise to Vancouver taxpayers, to residents, renters, homeowners, families and small businesses. On the other side, Councillor Christine Boyle. This budget is making investments that follow through on promises that we've made all year, uh, motions um, and priorities that this council has supported in many cases unanimously. Toby Kerr, Global News. Joining us now is Adrian Carr, Vancouver City Councillor with the Green Party. Councillor, thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, my pleasure, Jill. What about this budget do you think is good for Vancouver residents? Oh, I think there's tons that's good for Vancouver residents. Um, first of all, we are investing in essential services, the primary public safety um, services of police and fire. Uh, we've been way behind in terms of investing in the number of firefighters who are out there responding to the opioid crisis, to the heat domes, and to regular fires and incidents. Um, we've been behind by about 122 staff, and we know we've had to fill those. We've taken a little bit of a break through COVID in filling those positions, but um, we just um, invested now in the filling of more positions so that fire can our firefighters under, aren't under so much stress. Police as well. Um, we, we had an arbitrated compensation uh, settlement with the police uh, union. So, of course, that is going to cost us. And I, I fully believe in, in following through with what are arbitrated settlements. We, we really have to do that. Um, and uh, we are filling some positions that were left vacant over last year. So um, that's really been, I think, very important to people. But more than that, we are focused on, on the housing issue, on making sure that the sort of public services that people really need at this time in our city, that uh, the libraries, um, the parks, um, street cleaning, um, you know, the, the measures that I think people feel so uh, concerned about if they, if they aren't up to snuff. Um, plus, you know, we're really working on climate. This budget did have a very special motion that I put forward to have an additional levy of 1% to tackle what is really the outstanding existential issue of our times. And 99 people died in Vancouver this past summer, Jill, from the, the heat dome, which was a climate-caused event. Look at what's happening into other municipalities and out the Fraser Valley and in the southern interior with the flooding. Um, we have to take the, um, the, we have to get the money and put it into climate mitigation, into reducing our greenhouse gas emissions and also creating a safer place for people when those extreme weather events occur. I want to talk about the property tax increase because going into this, I think most Vancouver residents were under the belief that the property tax increase wouldn't exceed 5% or would be around the 5% mark. They're now being told it's 635 How do you justify that? Well, I think um, I think the goal was not, it wasn't a promise. And I, and I really have to admonish some of the councillors who are saying it's a broken promise. There was a motion that was moved by the mayor to have the um, staff prepare a budget of 5% for our consideration. 
Um, so we, so that's what staff did. It landed on our table. Now, we had a report not long before the budget, which was going to be able to raise money for the climate emergency. Um, unfortunately, that report did not pass. Um, so the money that we'd hoped to be able to move forward on um, everything from, you know, um, sort of um, neighborhood uh, safe streets uh, program. And so increasing. Well, anyway, the, the details are there. But the, but the point is that report pa- did not pass, which put us under a crunch to deliver on what we, we know to be very, very significant climate measures. So the one percent which is like 1% over the five, um, was in fact um, uh, put there because we didn't get to the, the, um, the passage of that amount earlier. And we know we are under obligation um, to actually meet our climate objectives. The extra 3%, you can chalk some of that, a good chunk of that up to, again, the arbitrated police settlement, which is absolutely essential for us to move forward on. So when you talk about the the climate levy, though, that is part of this increase and you're you're referencing, I think, the parking report that failed, that didn't get approved, that would have been the citywide parking uh, enforcement project or the parking permit project. So is the levy simply, I mean, that didn't go ahead. There were a lot of people that spoke out against it. So is this levy kind of that fee just in a different outfit? Well, you know what? It is partly, um, and I listened carefully to the people who came to speak to us on our parking program under the Climate Emergency Action Plan, and, and, and a number of them said they didn't like this way of collecting money. They thought it was, you know, just a sort of a tax grab, and they'd rather see an actual amount on the tax bill that, that was very clearly dedicated to um, the climate work. I mean, I, you know, I remember, as I say, many speakers making that point. So this, in fact, is responding to the fact that they didn't like the giving or the having to pay for the giving up of free parking space on their street. Um, and uh, and, and uh, it doesn't actually raise as much money as that parking program would have, um, but it is costing taxpayers less to do it. When you talk about the core services, because that's that's also what people are looking to their civic governments for. Mm. It, it is the street cleaning. It is garbage. It's making sure parks are maintained and accessible to people. It is libraries. I know in the report that was put to city council, there was uh, talking about the investments. And again, not the sexiest topics, but the investments mm. in the downtown feces cleanup pilot project, the downtown litter and debris cleanup project, because we hear from business owners and homeowners constantly saying there is human human feces in our neighborhood, in our doorways. And unless it's in a very small specific area of the city, no one's cleaning it up. So does that change under this budget? Yes, it does. Enhanced street cleaning is one of the line items that we did pass um, in this budget. Uh, And, uh, you know, I think that um, we've heard loud and clear that people are upset about it. I was born in the city, so I've seen the change over the, the years that I've been here, it's it's quite remarkable. You know, we used to be a really clean city. The challenges are enormous on us. And Jill, I just want to point out, you know, part of this is not just, it's not Vancouver's fault. Um, we are the core city for a region, and we do attract people who don't find services in their communities or wherever those communities might be. Sometimes it's even broader than Vancouver, but they end up 
in downtown Vancouver. Um, our homeless count is extraordinarily high. We have the burden of trying to find homeless shelters and provide good, decent, affordable housing, partnering, of course, with senior governments on that. Um, and the, But those people are not, not Vancouverites per se. They, they, they've come here because this is the core area. People come down here because we're in an entertainment center. We have the big sporting events. We have Granville Street. We have the bars and the clubs and the restaurants. We have the shopping centers that people love. Um, so as a consequence of that, our policing costs are higher than they might be in some of the other municipalities surrounding us. Um, and, and, you know, it, we have a thriving economy as a consequence, but truly um, we, uh, we, have, we have extra costs, and that puts a burden on the taxpayers of this city. Uh, when you say it's not Vancouver's fault, I think that can also be an argument used that on the one hand, while yes, everybody agrees, I think, that we should lead by example and that climate change is a very important issue and it's something that needs to be addressed. Uh, you could also make the argument that it's not Vancouver's fault, the global emissions. In fact, you could wipe Vancouver off the map and it wouldn't really have an impact. But again, we should lead by example. But is there not some way to do that without penalizing people more who already live in a very expensive city yeah boy we could talk at, at length about why our city so was expensive because honestly that too was a big problem and i wish we had a control on foreign ownership because that has been driving uh, our pro- housing and and property values through the roof over the last decade um, we are a safe place relatively speaking on a global scale and people recognize that it's a safe place to invest but housing should not be investment housing is for people to live um, so, you know, I think that that um, truly we've seen an increase um, in, sorry, I, I just got on a, on a tack about foreign ownership. Do you want to repeat your question? No, no my, and yeah, my question wasn't about foreign ownership. Having uh, the, the conversation about the price of housing, uh, we could do that completely on another topic. Yeah, but right. uh, I mean, provincially, we have a carbon tax. We have oh, yes, other right. levels of government right. that are dealing with climate change. Why do we also have a civic council that is putting these fees in that is also dinging people who are trying very hard to live in a very expensive expensive city. Got it. You know, it's not one jurisdiction's problem. Uh, This planet is one planet. We all live on it. Um, Climate change is the consequence of everyone's actions at all levels, from the the private and the business to the local governments to provincial to federal. And and so it is of international scope. But the solution, just like the problem, is what everybody's doing. Um, Some actors bigger in in terms of the problem, for example, the fossil fuel industry. Um, But but still in all, all of us have, I believe, an obligation at every single level to do what we can around our own emissions to bring them down. What I think a lot of people don't realize is when the city takes that leadership um, in investing in bringing down our own emissions, we often get to almost triple the amount that we invest. So our staff are pretty diligent about saying we're investing this much in this program to bring down emissions, and they seek matching grants from the federal and the provincial governments. All right, Councillor Carr, we'll have to leave it there. We're right out of time, but appreciate you joining us. I really appreciate your interest, Jill.
Well, yesterday on the program, we were talking about restaurants in BC and how they were gearing up for the holiday season. One of the concerns being they didn't have enough staff in some cases to go to 100% capacity with people wanting to book more functions and holiday gatherings and such. So it was pretty optimistic or at least sounded that way on the restaurant front. But we wanted to find out as well how hotels are doing and that part of the hospitality industry. So joining us now is Mike McLeod who is the Director of Member and Business Development with the BC Hotel Association. Mike, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me today, uh, Joe. Appreciate it. Well, we were looking forward to, or I know talking about how things were going at this time last year, there was a lot of talk of hoping that next year would be better. So what's happening as far as accommodations and are you seeing an increase or decrease as far as people making bookings? So um, as we sort of ended the summer, uh, we had several areas of the province that did reasonably well with what we would call leisure booking, so uh, vacationers and, and families getting away and that sort of thing. And um, and that sort of has held up really throughout, throughout the pandemic. Um, as we've kind of come into the fall, we were uh, a little more hopeful we would see more of the meeting and event uh, group business uh, return. And we certainly have seen that in the areas that were not uh, restricted previously. Um, uh, such as Lower Mainland and Vancouver Island, but it's been still a little choppy with um, working around restrictions on capacities in places like the Okanagan and, and other parts of the interior, but that has since uh, changed in the last week or so. And is there a concern, or are you seeing any kind of trickle-down concern with the new variant and people being a more, more hesitant about booking because of that? Uh, we're seeing a little bit of that. Um, certainly, you know, we're we're concerned, like everybody else, uh, about the emergence of it, and we're watching it very carefully. But we're also, you know, um, not jumping to conclusions, allowing and following uh, this, the, the the medical uh, professionals and, and Dr. Henry's uh, guidance, etc. Um, you know, the concern on our part for the moment is really more around the. Uh, confusion at the borders. So as, uh, you know, for example, our ski resorts uh, look forward to welcoming Americans back, uh, cross-border traffic, uh, as well as potentially international um, travel uh, to the interior. It's a challenge uh, with, um, you know, the uh, continued confusion about testing and how that's all working at the airports, uh, just generally inconsistency with that. Uh, So that's definitely been a a factor, and we're seeing that uh, translate into cancellations unfortunately and cancellations mainly from the united states or from elsewhere also uh both so we're seeing it uh both uh, um you know whether it's just confusion about the rules um at any given time if you're planning a trip and um you know something like a ski trip is sometimes can be last minute but a lot of times there's a you know a, some, some thought has gone into that travel so it's it's not essentially uh, not necessarily a uh, just jump in the car and go situation. So people want to be able to plan and understand what the rules are. And certainly with the recent addition of uh, the air uh, measures that were put into place, um, that's uh, becoming more uh, more challenging at our at our airports as well. So, and are you getting the sense as well that as it stands right now for people from the United States at least, they have the exemption when arriving at a Canadian airport. They don't have to get. Uh, the mandatory PCR test, but there is still the possibility of being pulled in for a random test. And for whatever reason, they're not using the rapid tests. It's a test that could take up to 72 hours that you would have to isolate. Is that causing a bit of a chilling effect on visitors as well? 
It's a deterrent for sure. And I think it's, you know, we've, um, we've been advocating for, um, you know, if, if testing does need to occur at the borders or uh, at airports, that it at least be consistent both ways. And that hasn't been the case up till now. And, um, you know, any more, we call it friction, uh, any, any more friction that our travelers coming into the country have to endure is, is they're going to be dissuaded to do it. It's, uh, you know, it's just the really around that uncertainty piece. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of folks are taking, uh, still feel like it's a leap of faith to travel and, uh, and they want to make sure it's as smooth as possible. And if they're confused about it, it they're going to look elsewhere to, to spend their money. Right. And uh, I know in the past we've talked about how there were still, when people were still, say, traveling around B.C. or traveling within Canada, that was mm-hmm. still leading to bookings and hotels, at kind of resort or more tourist destinations. But we were seeing a lot of vacancies in places like, say, downtown Vancouver. Uh, are you still seeing that? Or, or what kind of an impact is there there as well? We, we now put on road closures. Uh, some of the major highways are washed out and gas restrictions. Yeah, so uh, that's still largely the case where our urban centers are still, um, you know, trending much lower than, uh, you know, certainly 2018, 2019 numbers. And that's because they're predominantly reliant on the uh, meeting and conference business and the international travel. Uh, And, you know, again, with some of these, um, you know, inconsistencies around testing and entry requirements and, um, restrictions, you know, new restrictions, uh, just sort of the uncertainty will continue to hold that business from coming back. So while we're anticipating, you know, a cruise season in 2022 and those sorts of things, uh, things like meetings and events and just which are also heavily influenced by international travel uh, will continue to to be stalled until we have a little bit more sort of uh, fluidity uh, at the border. Um, I should say too, you know, we're also you know, watching and we've been working uh, and, and talking with the provincial government very closely on the situation with the roads, uh, coming up with, you know, working with our partners uh, in the interior, for example, ski resorts that, uh, uh, you know, are, re- are reliant on travel from the lower mainland uh, so that we, you know, we've presented options uh, to really, you know, look out, look for solutions outside the box to get people to and from those, those areas uh, on Highway 3 predominantly. Right. And, and what kind of where's your confidence level that 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 will be uh, kind of well resolved? Well, we know it's going to take a while to, to rebuild everything, but kind of getting some workarounds there. Yeah, I think, you know, we're we're hopeful. Um, I don't think we're there quite yet, but I but I believe that the amount of uh, conversation that's going on, I think, is is uh, um, hopeful for that situation. I think they understand, the government understands the situation and, and the needs of our businesses in those areas. Um, but at the same time, you know, our, our you know, we, we want to make sure that the folks that are affected by it uh, are looked after first. We also want to make sure the, uh, you know, supply chain issues uh, continue to, to resolve themselves first and foremost for everybody in BC. But um, we certainly want to make sure that uh, our voice is heard with respect to um uh, allowing businesses to operate effectively, given the, the difficult uh, challenges ahead of us. 
And I just wanted to ask you as well about, you talk about confusion and uh, and kind of people not knowing exactly what the rules are. And it mm-hmm. seems as though there, there's been a bit of clarification as far as uh, gathering for conferences and conventions and that a gathering of more than 50 participants can be at an inside place for those things. Uh, mm-hmm. Still no dancing allowed, but you can have those gatherings. So are you seeing bookings coming back as far as hotel uh, ballrooms or ho- hotel conference centers? Yes, absolutely. So if there is a positive light, particularly for those urban centers like downtown Vancouver, um, I stay in really close contact with a lot of those folks. And they're, they are saying, yes, they are busy with uh, like corporate holiday parties and, and those sorts of things. Uh, and we're very uh, you know, relieved to see some, some further easing of the indoor uh, restrictions recently. Um, you know, the, you know, the dancing issue uh, is still going to be one that's going to be around for a little while, I think, um, or the no dancing issue. Um, but, you know, I think everyone kind of understands that, gets that. Um, and at, at the very least, uh, you know, uh, a corporate meeting or, or something along those lines, that's not going to be uh, an effect for them. But um, uh, we are seeing that coming back, and, and that's a positive thing for sure. All right. We'll leave it there. Mike McLeod, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Well, this is a story you've been hearing about on the news. It has to do with a woman who is described as a vulnerable 60-year-old Penticton resident. She lost her home, and this case has led to the ombudsperson in B.C. to call for significant changes to the way municipalities use tax sales to collect those outstanding property taxes. The report, which was released today, is called A Bid for Fairness. And joining us to talk a bit more about this is BC's ombudsperson, Jay Chalk. Thank you so much for being here. Good afternoon, Jill. Can you give us the background of this case and, and the how this unfolded and how it then ended up in your office? Absolutely. So um, uh, in British Columbia, um, uh, anybody who owns uh, property in a municipality um, has to pay their property taxes. Uh, and uh, if uh, if people don't do that, um, there is a process set out in uh, two British Columbia laws that uh, uh, empower the municipality um, uh, to first declare the taxes in arrears, then delinquent, and then ultimately to um, uh, put uh, the property up for sale uh, uh, in what's called a tax sale auction. Uh, the minimum asking price is the taxes that are then owing, plus some minor costs for the cost of the actual auction. Um, and then um, after the auction takes place, the taxpayer then has a year uh, to uh, come in and pay their taxes off. And if they do that, the, the sale is cancelled. But if they don't do that, um, after a year, the, um, the property is transferred to the purchaser at the auction. And what happened in this case? So um, that is, uh, in essence, the, the process that, uh, that was followed uh, uh, in this case. However, uh, our investigation revealed some significant issues uh, with respect to, uh, really, I think, two main areas. So the first is that uh, uh, this arose in the city of Penticton, and um, the city uh, uh, and uh, the homeowner, uh, who we call in this report Ms. Wilson, uh, had some 15 uh, uh, course, uh, correspondences or conversations between them uh, uh, about it, and most of those communications had some form of error or deficiency uh, as a result of our investigation. 
uh, we determined that. And then the second, so that, that was an issue, things like citing the wrong section number of various statutes, giving her incorrect deadlines as to when things were due, et cetera. Um, uh, but then the other issue was that uh, after the auction took place and during that one-year period, um, uh, the, the city um, uh, at that point gave, made one phone call to her. She told them that she uh, would deal with the problem, and then the city didn't do anything else. And uh, in this case, the auction sale price was less than half of the assessed value. Uh, the property was assessed at over $400,000. It sold at auction for $150,000, and the tax bill was about $10,000. So all, um, uh, when she didn't uh, take any steps in the time after their one phone conversation, uh, uh, in my view, that was a big red flag, and the city should have done more at that point. Uh, and what they should have done was to contact the Interior Health Authority. The Interior Health Authority is empowered by law to make inquiries as to whether any of us need help uh, 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 arising from some form of disability or other challenge we have in our life, uh, and whether we need support and assistance just to prevent this sort of thing from happening. So where do you think things, from looking at this in your report, did, did things really start to fall apart? Was it when the city and whoever it was at the city of Penticton was corresponding with Ms. Wilson and making mistakes, not knowing exactly what they were talking about? Or was it when when somebody could have clicked and thought, okay, maybe if I make a phone call to try and help this woman, we can resolve this and it won't have to go to the extremes of selling her house? Well, certainly when one looks at the statistics... Uh, that um, apply to tax sales in Penticton. So over the last 32 years, some 152 auctions have taken place, um, but only in three occasions uh, over that period of time, Ms. Wilson's being the third, uh, has someone failed to redeem the property. So, or sorry, uh, you know, redeem and, and come in and pay their taxes and therefore and thereby preserve uh, their ownership of their property. So, um, it's it's not something that happens very frequently, and so uh, it certainly, uh, uh, in my view, uh, was something where the city officials should have uh, been alert um, to the significant difference between the sale price and the fair market value, the relatively small amount of taxes that we're owing, and should have taken more action at that point. And all they had to do, they didn't have to make nuanced uh, judgments about uh, Ms. Wilson's capacity. All they needed to do was phone Interior Health, and that would be their job uh, t- to do that uh, to do that uh, assessment work. Right, and it's my understanding in this particular case, uh, Ms. Wilson had the money, or she would have been able to pay the tax bill and stop all of this. That's correct, and, uh, and uh, our investigation indicated that uh, she had the funds available, uh, and uh, and so it's just unfortunate that. Uh, uh, to say the least, that uh, uh, the proper agencies whose job it is to support uh, all of us in society when uh, we have difficulty uh, managing, uh, that they they weren't alerted because um, it takes someone telling them. And so that's why British Columbia law specifically provides for any anyone who has information that someone needs support and assistance uh, to contact uh, the health authority for that purpose. And not that this is the heart of this case, but I mean, I think uh, it is a little bit. Why would a city that goes through this process, why would they take a house that was assessed at $420,000 and sell it for one hundred fifty? 
So the city applied um, uh, the provisions of the, the municipal tax sale provisions in the statute, and so they held an auction, and that was the outcome of the auction. There's requirements for advertising uh, uh, that uh, the, the the sale, and that was simply the outcome. And the city's um, uh, minimum uh, the minimum bid at the auction. Uh, uh, is related to the amount of taxes owing. And so that's a thing that, uh, that's an issue that we raised with the governments. We made five, uh, five recommendations to the province, and they accepted all of them. Uh, and um, uh, one of those recommendations is that uh, the Ministry of Municipal Affairs study the question as to whether minimum uh, reserve bids at a, an auction should be related to the taxes owing, uh, as it exists currently in British Columbia, or whether we should move to the Alberta model, uh, where it's related to the fair market value uh, of the property, and uh, and so the ministry has agreed to study that question uh, um, uh, and uh, is going to prepare a report and provide it to my office within the next year. So, so I mean, theoretically, somebody could have had there only maybe the word didn't get out about the auction, or only one person came to the auction. I understand that the first bid was about the amount of the taxes, so about ten thousand dollars. Somebody could have taken her home worth assessed at four hundred and twenty thousand dollars. They could have taken it for ten thousand, and that's correct. That that could be the auction price. There then, as I said, is a year afterwards in which the taxpayer can still uh, come in and pay the taxes and some some costs, and and thereby have the transfer cancelled. Uh, and that didn't happen in this case. And uh, and uh, it's really unfortunate that uh, the health authority wasn't involved. And uh, if they determined that uh, someone. Uh, 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 needed a support and assistance managing their money, they they can involve the public guardian and trustee. So there are agencies out there to help, um, but they need to be told. Uh, you mentioned the recommendations and the five that have been accepted. There was also a recommendation to compensate Ms. Wilson for about $141,000. It looks as though, though, that one was not accepted? Correct. That recommendation is directed to the city of Penticton. The others went to the province. Uh, and the city uh, has declined to uh, 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 implement our recommendation. I'm calling on them to reconsider. Uh, it's never too late to do the right thing, and I think that uh, uh, it's important that they reflect on uh, what happened in this uh, in this particular matter. And I'm hopeful that uh, uh, they will uh, they'll change their their mind on this. Uh, the city responded in a statement saying that they are disappointed that the ombudsperson chose not to include our complete and detailed response to the recommendations in the report, particularly information that does not support the conclusions that you came to. How do you respond to that? So um, uh, the city provided us with a letter and the letter had an appendix. Uh, we published the letter uh, and uh, at the beginning of the letter, we indicated that we carefully uh, reviewed both the letter and the appendix. Um, but uh, that in order to, we were intentionally mindful of uh, Ms. Wilson's privacy and we wanted to disclose publicly only the material that uh, we thought necessary to establish uh, the uh, grounds for the findings and recommendations. The appendix contained details about Ms. Wilson that we weren't prepared to disclose in a public report. Penticton's a smaller community, uh, uh, but we still considered uh, every word of their response uh, carefully. Uh, so in this case, does Ms. Wilson have any recourse or is she out her house, out of her equity, and that's it? Um, I, I, her remedy at this point uh, is uh, hoping that uh, the city of Penticton uh, decides to change their perspective on compensating her. Do you think this will change if the recommendations are accepted 
And uh, the, we look at this report. I mean, so one of the responses from the city as well was city staff were unaware that Ms. Wilson was a vulnerable person in need of support or assistance until after the conclusion of the tax sale process. So with these recommendations, if they're adopted, do you think that will prevent this from happening again? So I certainly think it'll mitigate the risk. One of the one of the specific recommendations we made to the munis- uh, Ministry of Municipal Affairs is that in consultation with the public guardian and trustee, that the ministry issue best practice guidelines about how, minist- uh, how municipalities can protect vulnerable property owners within the tax sales scheme, including inquiring about just the point you raised, Jill, about whether a property owner's failure to pay their taxes is due to some aspect of vulnerability or disability, and, and if so, notifying a person or authority who, that can help that person. Uh, the story just—it's just—it's—it's it's awful. I mean, it's heartbreaking to think that uh, this woman has lost her house and none of this had to happen. It's—it's it's a tragedy, and and uh, uh, I'm certainly hopeful that um, uh, the attention that we're seeking to bring to this uh, uh, case as a result of today's report um, will mean that the changes can be made, uh, um, and so that other people are not uh, so adversely affected. All right. Jay Chalk, we will leave that there for today. But thanks so much for making the time for us. Appreciate it. Anytime, Jill. Well, earlier in the program, I played for you just some of the comments from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau announcing that Canada is going to join the diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics. A lot of calls to the buzz line, people with opinions on that. Keep them coming. I'll share them with you a bit later on in the show. Right now, though, we want to continue that conversation. And joining us is Richard Curland, immigration lawyer and policy analyst. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, pleasure, Jill. Nice to uh, talk to something, talk to you about something a little different. Although we appreciated all that you were able to to give us following the Meng Wanzhou case. But let's talk about this. What is your response looking at Canada joining these other countries in this diplomatic boycott? Canada used to be a leader in these things, and it looks like now we're striving for the middle of the pack. Uh, how did we lose the leadership position? In, in dealings with China and, and go back in our in our Canadian history, we we effectively opened the door with China. We've always been at the forefront when it comes to policy regarding China, for better or for worse. And now, our heads down, our shoulders are down. Um, our country is responding uh, in a way that tries to stay out of harm's way, frankly, economic harm's way. We're keeping our head down and following others so that China, I suspect, will not regard Canada as a troublemaker leader globally. Uh, And unfortunately, uh, the Canadian legacy of globally seeking out to protect human right issues, freedom issues, and issues regarding democracy is, uh, by demonstration today, kind of caving in there. Hmm. Because will it even do anything? I mean, we've, we've heard some comments already from uh, China's ambassador to Canada saying, to, uh, to the U.S. diplomatic boycott, saying, we don't care, the officials weren't really invited anyway. So what does a diplomatic <laughs> boycott even do? <laughs> well, it's not substance. It's all diplomatic form. I, I don't know how many tickets uh, 
were in the past Olympic Games uh, provided to diplomatic communities. I, I, I can't see the diplos uh, engaged in uh, just uh, watching athletic performances uh, uh, in, in, during the Olympic Games. I can understand that uh, there may be private get-togethers where uh, the usual uh, diplomatic encounters will result in uh, formal and informal government uh, communication one to the other. But it looks like uh, a gesture. Uh, it's kind of uh, gummy tooth diplomacy, <laughs> frankly. And so what would have happened, and it's not as though the other countries have gone further, but the the other countries, the U.S., the, the United Kingdom, also doing this. What would happen if those countries or any country came out and said, we're not sending our athletes, we're pulling out from these games because we don't like what you're doing to people? Yeah, well, what if those other countries had their two Michaels uh, taken uh, a diplomatic hostage, uh, as occurred in Canada? Do you think those other countries would have been leading the press to do something tangible uh, on the occasion of the uh, Beijing Olympic Games? I think so. If, if it had been two American hostages, two UK hostages, two Australian hostages, they wouldn't have waited and slumped down to the middle of the pack before announcing a position on this. Uh, I don't know. Uh, granted, we're taking a view that uh, let's not make decisions in haste. Uh, let's wait for time. We have had our Canadian ambassador resign in, in, in this week, and uh, there will not be a replacement until these uh, Olympic Games in Beijing are done. So it looks to me that uh, Canada is moving the pieces on the chessboard not at all, <laughs> never mind slowly. Uh, we're, we're just uh, living in, in a climate of political fear, it seems, in Ottawa. Does it send the message, and when you mention the two Michaels, that all is forgiven? Well, yeah, I, I think the, the, the political will is to forget. Uh, maybe not forgive and forget, but just forget. Uh, and, and sooner rather than later. The good thing is that, and I, and I can share this uh, today, is it, it, over the last 10 days or so, uh, China appears to have opened the door to Canada. We are seeing, at least uh, here in Vancouver, there are now people, uh, high net worth, uh, or individuals representing significant uh, capital companies, knocking on Canada's doors. And they have, I haven't seen this in two and a half years. So something inevitably is going on behind the scenes, far from public view. I think the rapprochement is occurring, uh, and Canada perhaps uh, is willing to accept um, a rapprochement in economic affairs between our countries and is at the same time avoiding stimulating uh, discontent in Beijing. I, I, that's the only rational explanation I can put to what we're seeing in terms of Canada's contradictory position uh, when, when it comes to uh, observing the Canadian legacy of China relations and the Canadian duty and legacy to protect global human rights uh, consistently over time.
Uh, right. And th- those two things, while bo- both important, but, but very different, if we're talking about human rights issues, but are, w- one would also think, aren't there still Canadians that are being held in China? There, it's not as, I mean, not as high profile mm-hmm. as the two Michaels, but is that not still an issue? Well, the, the, the one issue that does uh, uh, give me cause for concern uh, is, is the, uh, the case and cases where during uh, the Meng Wanzhou uh, era, uh, sentences were flipped and upgraded uh, to include uh, death penalty. And uh, I haven't seen a reversal of those uh, cases as yet. Uh, and uh, hope uh, flares eternal uh, and uh, if China were to uh, put status quo ante, put things back the way they were uh, in terms of the criminal sentencing uh, to Canadian citizens who are uh, currently on Chinese soil, wow, uh, that would be uh, quite the game changer. And I hope uh, Beijing is listening to your show. <laughs> well, <laughs> I doubt that, but but perhaps. Uh, one other thing I wanted to ask you, what about what's happening with Peng Shui, with the tennis star who mm. uh, disappeared from public view? Should that not also be part of this conversation? Well, that's more suited to entertainment tonight kind of broadcasting. Uh, it, it, it ought to be part of the conversation because it's highly visible uh, internationally. So uh, it's there. Uh, can't ignore it. it, it it's a, it, it's a, the nightmare scenario, a scenario for a current Politburo in Beijing, uh, because it's one of their own, of a former member, allegedly. Uh, and uh, that doesn't bode well. Whenever a regime uh, slinks down uh, the food chain where uh, abuse, uh, abuse uh, as, as defined in any uh, country these days, uh, where the powerful can abuse fellow humans, treating them more like chicken than people. That's a problem. And the uh, integrity of governance is put into play. Uh, Folks may not uh, uh, publicly, even in, in some places, privately express discontent with that kind of abuse of power. Uh, by the powerful against the vulnerable. But over time, uh, revolutions uh, are fomented uh, by that kind of conduct by the all-powerful politicians or rulers in a country. So China will need to address this immediately in the short run, as as I'm sure they are. Uh, But until that is done, wow, uh, that's a sore toe. Uh, for China, uh, and it never should have occurred in the first place. We haven't heard all sides of the story, so open mind and all that, hear the other side. But uh, goodness gracious, um, I don't know how these things arise, uh, but wise minds will uh, enter the fray uh, to ensure that um, peace, domestic peace, uh, is the outcome. And perhaps later, Uh, The same way we've seen senior Chinese officials in the business world put into our latter-day equivalent of (laughs) re-education. Maybe that's not a terrible thing when a former Politburo member or close family-related member uh, does something uh, unacceptable, utterly unacceptable. Uh, 
uh, that jeopardizes uh, the integrity of the governing system in the country. All right, uh, Richard, we will leave it there for today. Thank you, though, so much. Uh, so great to ta- chat with you again. <laughs> Always an honor and pleasure, Jill. Thank you.